Hello, everyone, and welcome to American West History and Lore. I am your host, Paul Workman, and hope you guys had a happy Halloween. Hope all your kids and grandkids got all the candy that they could ever imagine. But you do know what happens next, and that is the feasting season. That's right. Thanksgiving, the Christmas, the New Year's, all the good stuff. That's where uh, that's where I gain all my weight back. That's for sure. Uh, if you can't tell, I'm I'm probably sounding a little bit under the weather to you guys. So bear with my voice. I came down with this. I wanted this episode to come out a little sooner, but um, unfortunately, it didn't. I think I'm feeling a little better. I, I don't know yet, but hopefully, I don't sound too bad for you guys. Uh, anyway, today's episode's a pretty good one. We're kind of gonna, kind of gonna, kind of going to focus on a little bit of uh, coinage history, a, a little bit, and, and you'll you'll see when we get into it. But without further ado, let's just jump right into the right into the episode with our first tale about uh, the Redfield Coin Hoard. The Redfield Coin Hoard is just one of many so-called coin hoards throughout the history of coinage. Specifically, it is a popular U.S. coin hoard, and it can rank up there with the Big Sky Hoard in which 220,000 Eisenhower dollars were found after being locked away in a Montana bank vault for 30 years, or the Buffalo Nickel Hoard which stampeded into Littleton after the company bought a hoard of some 300,000 Buffalo Nickels. Uh, perhaps at a later date we can get into some of those ho- other hoard stories, but for now we're just going to stick with the Redfield hoard story and explain why I find it so fascinating. Uh, first off, coin hoards are just one of those topics that are so entertaining. I mean, who doesn't dream of one day just stumbling across a hoard of old coins or currency? Uh, you, you most definitely do not have to be a historian or a coin collector to, to enjoy these kinds of stories. They're just fun. And, you know, the American West is so riddled with with stories of lost treasure and lost mines. This is just kind of a little bit more modern version of that. So why does the Redfield hoard stick out so much to me, though? Well, it's no doubt because of the type of coins that were being hoarded, which were dollar coins, most of them being Morgan dollars, and to a much lesser extent, peace dollars. You might be asking yourself, What's so special about Morgan and Peace dollars? Well, what makes them special is that each Morgan and Peace dollar is composed of 90% silver and 10% copper. Each weighs 26.73 grams, which equates to about 0.773 ounces. So, based off of what silver prices are when you're hearing this, melt value alone makes them worth more than their face value. My advice, if you have any of these, please don't spend them based off their face value. Because if you do, you'll make that cashier a very happy person, but you might not be so happy afterwards. Anywho, continuing on to the Redfield Horde. The Redfield Horde is named for Levere Redfield, a.k.a. the Silver Dollar King. There is not a great deal of information on Levere. However, we can deduce that he was born around the turn of the 20th century. To quote Elaine Bennis from Seinfeld, Redfield was known to be, quote, unquote, careful with his money. In other words, he was cheap. He was also known as a colorful and eccentric character. The biggest fact to remember, though, being as this is a money hoarding story, is that Redfield had a great mistrust for banks, paper currency, and, like many out there even today, the government. It wasn't until after the stock market crash of 1929 that Redfield moved to California, Los Angeles to be exact, 
and began investing in oil stocks. He bought the kinds of stocks that, that no one wanted, and he made a killing off of them. Soon after that, he moved to Reno, Nevada, where he began investing in real estate. It's believed that the reason he moved to Reno was due to the abundance of casinos. Now, the casinos used a ton of silver dollars for payouts, and the banks were stocked with them. Being as Redfield didn't trust paper currency, he converted as much of his liquid assets as he could into silver dollars. And since the Reno banks had many on hand, it worked out perfect for him. Another source states that he moved to Nevada to take advantage of its state's tax haven status. Redfield, for the most part, went completely unnoticed, and that's the way he liked it, until one cold January afternoon in 1948. On that day, Redfield began to make his way home from playing roulette at a downtown casino. It was at that time, it was at the time of day when all the kids were still in school and the neighborhood was void of noisy children. Uh, he had some good luck at the casino that day, winning around $2,300, which was tucked into a paper bag clutched tightly in his hand. He noticed a man had been following him for a few blocks and began to pick up his pace. The stranger overtook him and said, Give me your $2,300. Redfield no doubt deduced that the strange man had been watching him since the casino. Redfield, being the money-loving man he was, wasn't about to give up his winnings without a fight. The stranger clutched a brick in his hand and smacked Redfield on the side of the head. The mugger demanded the money again. Still, Redfield resisted. He hit Redfield several more times, but still, Redfield would not give up the money. Fearing that the neighbors in the quiet neighborhood would find the situation out, the mugger left and ran away, unable to secure Redfield's winnings. Redfield had a fractured skull, but he still had his money. A passerby called the police and an ambulance was called out to pick Redfield up. And when word got around about the attempted mugging of Redfield's riches, four more attempts to rob him took place. His low profile of being rich was now out of his hands and he was a target for all would-be robbers. It was the beginning of the end of his unknown wealth. Redfield died in 1974 with an estate worth of about $100 million and in the basement of his home, which many would consider modest, behind a false wall was a hoard of 411,000 silver dollars. As mentioned previously, most were Morgan dollars, but some were peace dollars. Many of them were still in their original mint bags. And just as a side note, the weight of 411,000 silver dollars is right around 11 tons. So in the spirit of this episode being about coinage, I figured we'd uh, we'd discuss one of the United States' lesser-known mints. And now, I'm sure everyone listening at some point has picked up a penny, looked at it closely, and noticed under the coin's date either a blank area or a D, P, or an S. Now, of course, this isn't limited to pennies alone, but to all U.S. coinage. Now, if you're not aware, this is known as the mint mark, and it just symbolizes where the coin was pressed. Its placement varies depending on the denomination that you are looking at, but it's typically there somewhere. D stands for the Denver Mint, S for San Francisco Mint, and either P or blank for Philadelphia Mint. This is, for the most part, common knowledge, I'm sure, and I've quite possibly wasted your time by explaining it. However, did you, did you know that New Orleans had a U.S. Mint? Its mint mark was O. How about West Point? 
near the military base. Its mint mark is W and nowadays pretty much presses commemorative coins and serves as a gold depository. But the mint we're going to talk about today once resided in the American West. Its mint mark is CC. Can anybody guess what it's called? I'll give you a second to think about it. Time's up. If you guessed Carson City, you would be correct. It was decided in 1863 that a money-making palace, also known as a mint, would be constructed in Carson City, Nevada, due to the large amounts of silver that had been discovered in 1859 near Virginia City, Nevada. This mine where the majority of the silver was found came to be known as the Comstock Lode, and when discovered was actually part of the Utah Territory. The site for Carson City, which was formerly known as Eagle Station and served as a trading post, was purchased by Abraham Curry in 1858, and it was he that renamed the town site to Carson City in that same year in honor of Kit Carson, who we know today as one of America's most well-known mountain men. By 1861, the Utah Territory was broken up a bit, and the area where Carson City sat became part of the Nevada Territory. Now, even though 1863 was the year that Congress had officially established the Carson City Mint, ground wasn't actually broken on the project until July of 1866, due to the continuing battle that was the Civil War. It was three years later, in December of 1869, that the Mint opened its doors and it was Mr. Abraham Curry that was made the first superintendent of the facility. The Carson City Mint struck eight different coin denominations during its short lifespan, ranging from dimes to $20 double eagles, and a grand total of approximately $49 million in gold and silver was used to make this happen. The Mint produced coinage up until 1893, and in 1899, its formal status of being a certified U.S. Mint was withdrawn because of decreased mining activity at the Comstock Lode. The building served as an assay office for a while, and today it serves as the Nevada State Museum. Now, I'm not sure how many of you check your change when you get some in return after making a purchase, but you know what? It takes just a short time to inspect it, and you never know. It's possible that you might find a coin with that CC mint mark on it, and that could quite possibly make your year or life. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of American West History and Lore. Again, I apologize about the the crackly voice and uh, you know what? It's just part of the changing of the season and that's life, you know? But I always want to try to provide you guys the content and stay on an okay schedule to be able to get an episode out for you guys. Anyway, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, feel free to send them to thepkworkman at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-P-K-W-O-R-K-M-A-N at gmail.com. Also, go leave us a kind review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. We'd love to hear from you, and it helps other people find the show easier. Take care, guys, and we'll catch you on the next episode.